I'm at a loss. We weren't here with you last week. We were traveling, and uh, I knew that song was going to be introduced. I've listened to it for the past several months. Pastor Josh and I have talked over recent months and years about the fact that kind of currently we have a gap in our, not just ours here at FABC, but across evangelicalism, have a bit of a gap in songs about heaven. There was a day when there were a lot of songs about heaven and um, some of them have kind of gone out of vogue. Some of them, quite frankly, were just a little too sentimental, um, not much truth to them. Um, but thank the Lord for some new ones that are being written and, and songs like that. And just obviously you pick up pieces of scripture woven into the text there. But what a thought as believers. We're almost home. You know, one of the things as I do as a pastor is I preach funerals, lead them, preside over them and course over the last eight years have done that many times here. I was thinking this morning, don't know why it came to mind, but on our, our drive here this morning I was thinking the first funeral I did here was for Elisa's family. And then over the last uh, several years have had, and I say it this way, the privilege of presiding over the memorial services for many of your loved ones. Uh, some of you, both of your parents or spouse. Scripture tells us, this is all free by the way, Scripture tells us we sorrow as believers. That's the human part of us. But not without hope. And the reason we have that hope is because we are almost home. As the old text says, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This isn't it. We are surrounded by the tension and the angst and the pressures of this world. This isn't it. We have this blessed hope. We have the truth of the gospel. Paul here, as we look in Romans 10 together this morning, Paul here is pouring out his heart for his brothers and sisters as Israelites, his human kin. And he says in chapter 9, we looked at it, I mean, he goes to the, to the length to say that if I could give up, my salvation so that you would be saved, I'd do it. I mean, that, that just is a thought that boggles the mind. He says it another way in the very first verse of what we have is chapter 10. He says, my brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 
It's what fueled him every day. That's the desire that drove him. That was the burden that he carried. A couple weeks ago, as we continued to look through this passage, verses 2 to 13, he reminds them, he reminds us, because it's preserved here for us, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That has always been the struggle. Ever since sin entered into the world, man has tried to figure out how can I, as a person, fix this problem? And we always come up short. Because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. And that tension has has always been there. It has always existed. It was there in the first century church. It exists even still here today. People are trying to just do enough. And my friends, he has already done enough. Jesus already paid the price. And that is the message that Paul is preaching. That is the truth he is so so diligently, so fervently, so earnestly trying to convey to them. So I want us to look this morning in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 21. I'm going to read this for us. You can follow along as I do. Then we'll work our way through and just kind of look and see what he is, what he's really saying here is, as again, he just really uh, lays bare his, his heart. He starts in verse 14. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They've not all, be- not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long I've held out my hands. What a powerful statement from God to his chosen people, the Israelites. 
I wonder what must have gone through Paul's mind, his heart, his emotions as he uttered those words, dictated them most likely. And they're written down by the scribe. All day long, all day long, God has held out his hands. God has many attributes, many characteristics. In the pages of scripture, we, we hear him speak the world into existence. We watch him walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. He speaks to Moses from a bush and the psalmist tells us that he smiles, he sorrows, he gets angry, and he takes pity. We know that he's holy, he's just, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's loving. And in this passage before us, we see him evidencing amazing characteristics towards really a a most antagonistic audience. And as he has done for many generations, really millennia, he is patient and persistent. He's patient and persistent. You see, Paul here, as I said, has been pouring out his heart. And like a skilled litigator, attorney that he is, he's been presenting argument upon argument to the Jews to get them to realize that that God has, in fact, honored his promise. Messiah has come, and his name is is Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. For ages, the prophets preached this to the people, and and now there must still be those who will preach the good news to those who have not yet received and to those who have not yet believed. A week or so ago, about 10 days ago, on our flight down to Baltimore, and then ultimately we connected and went on down to the Carolinas for our meeting, but... I got on the plane and sat down. There was a lady in the window seat, and I always get the middle seat. It's just how good of a husband I am. (laughs) But we sat down, and the lady in the window seat greeted me and, you know, said, sorry, I'll, you know, try to give you as much room as I can. We... Struck up a conversation, you know, chit-chat, where are you going, what do you do, so on and so forth. And, of course, she asked me, she said, what do you do? I told her. And she got this look on her face, which is usually the case when you tell somebody you're a pastor. They're like, you know, it's kind of a pucker or duck situation. Um, And she looks at me and she says, I'm a Messianic Jew. I looked back at her. I said, how you doing? She said, not real good. 
we, we talked, she, she talked, I did a lot of listening. It was a fascinating hour and 10 minutes or so down to Baltimore. I wish we had had a lot longer flight. But I listened to her as she shared her testimony of how she came to accept that Yeshua was Messiah. It was a beautiful testimony. Her burden for her people, her understanding and realization that she had a very unique, we talked about the fact that I live in West Hartford and, you know, I'm trying to figure out, we've got six synagogues here in our city and how in the world do we reach out and so on and so forth and the various uh, barriers that exist. And, and she said, oh, she said, yeah, she said, she said, that's our job. She said, that's why, that's why I'm here. She shared with me, you know, some of the, the intricacies, which I knew academically about, you know, Messianic Jews and so on and so forth. And again, um, it can get to be quite the conversation. But what a blessing it was to hear her salvation testimony, to hear her belief, to hear how she articulates that to those in her family, those uh, that, that she knows of, of Jewish descent. I shared with her with the passages that we're preaching and studying through as a church right now, and, and she went, oh. It's <laughs> like, yeah. And of course, we talked about what Paul has been saying here in Romans, you know, especially 9 and 10, and how he's pouring out his heart, and she's like, absolutely. Her son is Special Forces IDF. But her heart is to share the gospel, the gospel that the Messiah has come and his name is Yeshua. That's what Paul's doing. And this section here begins with him asking a series of four rhetorical questions. You know, by definition, a rhetorical question is asked in order to create either a dramatic effect or to make a point. It's not really about getting an answer, right? The answer is somewhat self-evident. It's to make, make someone think. And Paul, Paul wields this literary sword, as it were, like the expert that he is. What we read in verses 14 and 15 are the very essence of what the writer of Hebrews also describes when, when he writes in what we have as Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's really what Paul is doing here. He's asking these questions. He's leading them down a path. There's a bit of a gotcha at the end of it for them. But it's not malicious. I mean, they, they knew. At least they should have. The first two questions refer back to verses 9 through 13, and then questions 3 and 4 refer to God's work of calling messengers into his service. Dr. MacArthur notes on this, he says, quote, 
With simple progressive logic, Paul establishes that only those who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Only those who have believed in him can call upon him. Only those who have heard of him can believe in him. Only those who have a preacher can rightly hear of him. And finally, no preacher can preach the true gospel who has not been sent by God, end quote. You see, again, we, we look at this and we know what has to be said. We know what has to be done in order for people to come into a saving, regenerate, redeemed relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But this is really spelling it out. A person doesn't just wake up one day and go, I think I'll be a Christian today. No, God has ordained there to be a process, a procedure as it were, a sequence of events. Theologically, we, we talk about how God has revealed himself and there is natural revelation, there is special revelation. Natural revelation is the world around us. We see that God created you know, the man's gotten all technical about, you know, how to say all that. But fact is, Genesis 1 answers the question. In the beginning, God. And God spoke the world into existence. But then there's this general or natural revelation. Then there's special revelation. That's this. How God has revealed himself to us through his word, through, through the prophets of old, through Jesus Christ, through the apostles. And Paul writes here very clearly that the gospel must be shared, the gospel must be heard, it must be received, believed for there to be salvation. So he asked the question, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? See, trusting Christ is not only a matter of believing, but also obeying. In Acts chapter 17, we read, it says, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. In Romans, the same passage here, chapter 10, he says, you know, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. And then he says, how shall they believe in him they have not heard? And of course, the answer comes, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Paul asks his readers, he's writing this letter to people at Rome. He asks his readers to consider the question, how shall they hear without someone preaching? You see, the word used there, they knew it very well. It's a, it's a word that, that we ought to be familiar with. The Greek word is keruso. It means to herald, to proclaim, to publish, to speak about. In reality, there had been many through the centuries who had done exactly that. This wasn't a new concept. This was, oh, somebody should do that. That's a good idea. No, Paul is going to drive home the point. No, no, no. It's been done. It's being done. You see, Paul has already reminded them. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Malachi. He's gone down the list, have preached to them. 
It's hard for us to imagine a time which Paul defaulted to quoting others to help substantiate his message, right? That's really what he's doing. That's what we do. I mean, a few minutes ago, I quoted Dr. MacArthur because he's a lot smarter than I, and I love the way he said it. Why should I try to say it differently? You know, just Dr. MacArthur said. Now we go, Paul said, the apostle Paul said, and everybody's like, what did he say? Can you ever imagine a day when people got a letter and was like, Paul who? That's the day he was living in. So he quotes the Old Testament prophets. This is exactly what he's doing. Preachers had been sent. Jesus had sent the apostles into the world to preach. Through that command, the great commission we have come to call it, we are still being sent The reality is that Jesus' last command should be of our greatest concern. He says, go and preach the gospel. And the gospel is to to be preached to all who have to this point rejected it. God had already established that the gospel was for all mankind. Verse 12, he declares there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. Paul had been sent, we've been sent to preach the gospel of Jesus. What is that? His death, his burial, his resurrection, and his coming return. The process, if we can use that term of salvation, is clear. Messengers are sent to declare the gospel. Sinners hear. Some believe. Those who believe call upon Christ and are saved. Guaranteed. The conclusion is simple. Sinners cannot be saved apart from the word of God because as he says, faith comes by hearing, hearing of the word of God. Don't get distracted by all the the what ifs, the hypotheticals, the far-fetched extreme cases. The Bible says what the Bible says. Satan loves to throw into our mind, oh, but what about, let God worry about that. The Bible says what the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing. Once again, Paul goes back to the prophets Isaiah and Nahum to paint this picture. And I have a whole message I just preach on verses 14 and 15. He says there, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. It begs the question, do you have beautiful feet? No, I don't. (laughs) But he's not talking about us physically, right? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They definitely got that in first century and Old Testament, right? I mean, they're walking those dusty, rocky roads and sandals and so on and so forth. And I mean, they, yeah, feet took a beating back then. 
But, he, but he's laying it out. He's helping us to see this picture, to understand God's given us a task. Humanly, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but do you understand when you are obedient to that task, when, when the gospel is shared, how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel? We could say it's our duty. In 2008, in May, I think May 12, 2008, there was a massive earthquake in the Sichuan province of China. Earthquake measured some 8.0 on the Richter scale. It was 12 miles deep. It, it lasted for like two minutes and was, it was felt literally over 1,000 miles away. Five million plus people were left homeless. 100,000 people were killed found a news article some years ago about this. Out of, out of this amazing, this terrible tragedy, amazing natural occurrence, came a little hero, a little boy named Lin Hao. He's nine years old. When the earthquake struck, the article said, he was with his classmates in a hallway in their school building. Building came down. He was trapped for a time. He was able to extricate himself. And once he got himself freed, he went and he found a, one of his classmates, a friend, and he helped carry him out. Then he went back and got another one, helped carry him out before rescuers arrived. When he was asked why he went back into the rubble, this little nine-year-old boy after escaping, he just simply said, it was my duty. You see, as they began to question him, they realized that just that day, his teacher had appointed him to be the class monitor for the day. He was the leader. And he put that calling ahead of his own well-being. It was my duty, he said. Paul had been appointed to preach. We have been appointed to preach. It's our duty. It's our privilege. It's a, it's a humble calling, but, but it's our duty. It's what God expects us to do. We've been talking for some time around here about, you know, it's on the bottom of the newsletter and the prayer sheet and stuff like that. Go make disciples. We're not ashamed. It's our duty. God has said, this is how it is to be. This is how people come to salvation. He could have done it any way he wanted. This is the way he chose. And through the preachers God had sent, he's been proving his patience. He's been proving his persistence. We've also already mentioned this morning that in our growth groups this study this past Wednesday, we were focused on 1 Samuel 7. God was doing it then. He was doing it in the first century. He continues to, today, to hold out his hands. God is faithful to his promise, and he continues to make himself known. Peter of course, one of the other first century apostles said it this way. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 
He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some men count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is the message that was being preached, continues to be preached. What they're all saying is, what, what Paul here is saying, all day long God says, I have stretched out my hands. Has any nation in history, had God revealed to them more clearly and completely than Israel? See, the ruling principle of the gospel in the New Testament is to the Jews first. Matthew 10, Jesus sent his disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The disciples were commanded to stay in Jerusalem after the resurrection and begin their ministry there. Then, of course, they were to go beyond that. The first seven chapters of Acts records the ministry to the Jews. God's arms open wide to them. The commentator has pointed out, quote, the barrier to salvation is not racial or cultural, but a personal rejection of the God who offers it. That's really what is being said there in, in verse 16. That's, that's the point of it. Paul reminds his readers that, again, Moses, Isaiah, Hosea, they'd all pro prophesied of Israel's rejection and God's inclusion of Gentile nations into his plan and his offer of salvation. He had told them this is what was going to happen. It was the inclusion of Gentiles that caused such a violent reaction in the hearts of many of the Jews. There's this, is this jealousy and, and God does that on purpose. Common prayer. I mean, they, they really, you know, this, this tension has existed. They really didn't like it. It is said by some historians that a common prayer made by many Jewish men each morning was, I thank God I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And that kind of encapsulates really kind of how they feel. God chose to use the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles as a way to arouse jealousy in Israel for him. See, in our, in our human mind, we look at that and we're like, well, that's awfully petty. That, that's not very nice. That's, you know, we shouldn't do that. God here is, is demonstrating to us, it, but it has, it's got a divine purpose. And I mean, who are we to criticize God and his methods? But it goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Again, Paul here is quoting Moses and all the other Old Testament prophets. He's like, I'm not just conjuring this up. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, Moses had written to the people. God says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. 
I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. You see, it's according to God's plan and a demonstration of his patience to continue to hold out his hands. He said, here's what Israel did. Israel decided to go after other gods. And of course, that angered God. That made God jealous. So God says, here's how I'm going to handle that. And he said, I'm going to allow, and he uses that phrase, it's an Old Testament phrase, those who are no people. That's how the Israelites, Jewish people saw all the other nations of the world. They're nothing. There are no people. And God said, I'll turn to them and offer it to them. But it wasn't just a wholesale rejection of the Israelites. It was his way of being, uh, of showing them, look, I, I am willing to save them as well, but I, my hands all day long are open to you. All day long. God has lovingly and patiently shared the truth of the gospel. In the final book, final verses of the book of Acts, if you just turn back, there's probably just four or five pages probably back towards uh, the front of your Bible. I want to read this little section. Luke here, of course, Paul's personal physician is the one who records this history book, as it were, of the, of the beginning of the church. And Acts 28, very last chapter in the book, very last verses, beginning verse 17, I'm going to start reading. But Paul here is in Rome. Now, this hasn't happened yet, Okay. We're in the book of Romans. This is mid-50s A.D. What's recorded here at the end of the book of Acts is going to happen in the next decade or so. Okay? But this is, Paul had been preaching this message for a long time. This is just more evidence of it. This all day long. And in Acts 17, Paul here now is at Rome. And and Luke here records this, this episode, and it's kind of startling, that occurred in Paul's future ministry here when he was at Rome. He says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. When they gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. And from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He just continued to do this for, for years and years and years. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, 
go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Luke records that he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's what was going on in the first century. That, that is as the gospel is rolling out and over and over again, this message is being preached. Do you not understand? God has been holding out his arms. Day after day, year after year, century after century. To the present. Again, he enlists Moses, who represents the law, and Isaiah, who represented the prophets. Paul never tired of preaching the gospel. He never wavered in the message of truth. Let us, let us not be weary in our well-doing of preaching the gospel. Because it is only through the preaching of the gospel and the hearing of the gospel that sinful people will be saved. There can be no doubt of God's patience and his persistence. Preachers have been sent. Preachers are being sent. And it's not just ones who stand like me behind a pulpit on a Sunday. It's all of us. You are being sent. Not by me. By Jesus Christ. By, by the God who gave us this book. To go make disciples. So this morning, I just ask you simply, have you, have you heard the gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ is Messiah. He came to die on Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for your sin. If you heard that, have you received it? Have you believed it? If so, are you preaching the gospel? Are you taking this message as Paul did and telling people, Jews and Gentiles, God's arms are still open wide. Isn't it a beautiful picture? Any of us in our families, whether we're parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever, you know, the holidays are approaching and we'll go see people or people will come see us and what happens when there's a little one, right? Right? As soon as they hop out of the car or as soon as they come into the house, whew, come here. All day long, 
God says, I have held out my hands. Have you come? Will you? Will you go tell someone who needs desperately to hear that? His hands are still open. His arms are still open wide. Let us not be ashamed. Father, thank you for the beauty, the power of your word. Thank you for sending Jesus. You had promised he has come. He has finished the work you sent him to do. And Father, we thank you that even today your arms are open wide to receive those who hear the gospel, who believe it, who repent. Oh, Father, if there is one here even today who has not yet received this message of good news, may this be the day of their salvation. Father, as we leave this place in a few moments, as we go out into our community this week, may we take this message of hope, of love, of endless love, Oh, Father, this world is so broken, so hurting. Yes, we're almost home. But we're not there yet. We still have work that you've assigned us to do. Help us, Father, to be faithful. We ask this by your grace and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.